Despite all of this effort to sabotage, despite all of this effort to punt, Jacob, Esau, and Isaac, and Ishmael, and Abraham, and Lot, God perseveres in his blessing. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. God's Word says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The Bible is often presented as a book of stories, 66 books, really overarching with one story proposed between two covenants of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And throughout, you will find a lot of different things going on. There are plots, there are subplots, there's history, there's mystery, there are people who are tragically flawed heroes, and then there are those who are supernaturally redeemed, even though they've been villains. There are Amorites and Hittites and Jebusites and Philistines and everyone in between. But throughout, you will see in God's Word this scarlet thread weaving because unlike the Lord of the Rings when everything is about capturing the one ring and destroying it if you're good and using it for yourself if you're evil, the Bible revolves around this word of covenant and blessing that out of this seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, and out of this covenant, redemption will come. Because in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of humanity, we are reminded by the Lord that the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent's head. And so the whole goal of human history throughout the scriptures and the patriarchs is to preserve this bloodline. And they do so against seemingly impossible odds. Abraham is to be a blessing to the nations, and through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but he can't father a son. Isaac is to continue that blessing, but he can't find a wife. Jacob is one who goes on to receive the blessing of the Lord. The older shall be served by the younger, but he can't finance an inheritance. And Joseph continues in the example, and yet his brothers betray him, and he can't follow them. So they face famine and starvation. They face bondage and slavery. They face warfare and strife. And the scripture reminds us earlier that they desired God more than they desired the things of the earth, to the point of which many of the future promises weren't even realized in their lifetime. And they do so because of two words that keep occurring over and over again. Covenant. Blessing. Word covenant in the Hebrew is actually an infinitive. It translates not to make a covenant, but to cut a covenant. And tradition was that in Old Testament times when an agreement was reached, they would take an animal sacrifice, split the animal in two, and the two parties would walk between that dead animal, signifying that if we break this covenant, if we break this promise, so be it done to us as it would be done unto these animals. Can you imagine trying to do that in the court system today for a legal requirement? might make us think differently. But there are two types of covenants described. One is a bilateral covenant, which involves two parties, but the one that God makes with Abraham is really a unilateral covenant in which he says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will be your God. 
And God is the one who keeps this covenant. And not only does he make this covenant, this promise, he also makes a blessing. He says to Abraham, through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the blessing is of itself God, but the ultimate blessing is the redemption of man through Jesus Christ, through Abraham's bloodline. And so they continue in their mission, even as they face the reality of their own fallenness. Abraham and Lot are divided as fathers. Isaac and Ishmael are divided as sons. Jacob and Esau are divided as, as brothers. And if you look at the backstories behind some of their examples, the Scripture does not hold them up in high esteem. It picks the high points of their life in Hebrews 11. But if you read back into the Old Testament, it's almost like they're playing a high-stakes game of spiritual hot potato with this covenant. Instead of handing off the blessing, they're trying to punt it out of reach. They keep throwing laterals to one another, and yet they're fumbling the blessing. Lot wants the good land rather than the promises. He says, I don't want this, I want that. Isaac and Ishmael separated over the conflict with their mothers. Then Isaac plays favorites with his children. And Jacob, when he doesn't get the covenant in the way that he thinks he should, grabs Esau's heel on the way into the world, and Esau sells his birthright for just a bowl of stew. It's all they can do to keep this lineage going. They do everything in the world to sabotage their inheritance. And so at some point, they decide if God's not going to do it in their time, they decide to help him out. So Sarah says, I know how to have a son. Jacob dresses up like his brother in order to make sure he receives God's blessing, even though God told him, I'm already going to give it to you. They are their own worst enemies. And so are we. The fear and the anxiety and the worry that keeps you up at night most of the time, if you're honest with yourself, is because they are events that you cannot control. You think about all of the things that worry us. Jesus says, teach us this day. Give us our daily bread. They decide to help God out. Sarah says, I know how we'll do it. And we do this in so many different things to where if we're not careful, we try to throw away the blessing of God. And so if I, if I don't have a, a spouse in my timing, it's better to go ahead and get married even if that person's not a believer because I don't want to end up alone or I want to experience sex outside of God's protection and God's marriage, better not to have to wait, culture tells us. We spend so much time worrying about things that we have no control in which God has said, do you not see the sparrow on the ground and I don't notice it? Do you not see the lilies of the field, how they are clothed? Are you not much more valuable than they? And yet, for some reason, the human race cannot take God at his word. And he says, there's really just two things you're responsible for, isn't there? <laughs> am I right with God? And am I right with others to as much as an extent as I can be? I know that sometimes time and healing has to take place in human relationships, and sometimes it's not always possible. But God has said, if you are loving me with all your heart, and you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing what you've been called to do. And yet so often we walk out of here trying to sabotage it. But do you know what I love about the Word of God? It's probably one of the favorite things that you look at is that there is nothing in this book 
that can't be redeemed outside of unbelief. And you know something else? There is nothing in your life that God can't redeem and use completely for his glory. Not your divorce. Not your wayward child. Not your job loss. Not the most humiliating and most embarrassing thing you can think of. Because the difference between us and Scripture is people in this era see our deeds, but the Bible characters, when they make an era, it gets recorded for 2,000 years. So be thankful for that. But he says, I will redeem you. I will restore you. And I want you to see that despite all of this effort to sabotage, despite all of this effort to punt, Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael and Abraham and Lot, God perseveres in his blessing. There's nothing in your life that God can't redeem and use for his glory. Someone described God as sort of this cosmic chess player, that whatever moves humanity is making here on earth, God is working all things together for good to those who love him. And it says that he is actually orchestrating all things in an effort to accomplish to the counsel of his will. Isaiah writes this in chapter 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And after recalling the memories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the apostle Paul proclaims in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So as much as you try to mess up your life, if you are a child of God, he will fix it one day. He does it here. These all died in faith. And so must we. So these patriarchs come to the end of their earthly lives, and the only thing they really have to show for it is burial rights. They don't have deeds of property. They don't own the land yet. And they pass on their unfulfilled hopes and dreams to their children. And so Jacob makes record of where he will be buried. Don't you bury me in Egypt. Joseph gives instructions concerning his bones. Don't you bury me here. You take me into the promised land. Because they knew that even though they would die, God's promises would live. Is there a better heritage? Faith passed on to Abraham's son and his grandson and his great-grandson. That's the legacy we want. It tells us that Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and on Esau, but even beyond through their descendants. Doesn't the scripture say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Doesn't John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And then Jesus himself, the embodiment of the blessing, will say, blessed are those who keep my word and do it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're given the example of Jacob as he lay dying, leaning on the top of his staff worshiping. Oh, God might have thrown his hip out of socket, but he had sparked a fire in his bones. And this man who had witnessed everything found God 
faithful who had promised, a sojourner nearly all of his life who nevertheless believed that God had prepared a place for him. Spurgeon says this better than I can. Perhaps the finest thing in Jacob's life was the close of it. He was more royal between the curtains of his bed than at the door of his tent, greater in the hour of his weakness than at the day of his power. He entered this world under a cloud of shame, but he left it in a blaze of glory. You can't control how you enter this world, but by God, you can control how you leave it. Die well. Die in faith. And one day these graves will bust open. One day that prayer will be answered. One day my children will turn to the Lord. So Joseph gets to the result of all this after Lot's rejection of the land, after Isaac's poor parenting skills, after Jacob's manipulations and Esau's recklessness and the ten tribes of Israel's utter treachery. And after three generations of utter chaos, he looks around and he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And in Joseph, there is a foreshadowing of David's psalm which says, I will tell of your name to my brothers and in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Because when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And may I say this? When God builds a church, he keeps his church. A lot of people doubting the fate of Christianity in the West today. What will become of it? Will we be able to worship freely? And even though we can worship freely now, will anybody even bother to show up? Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, just was quoted this past week in talking about how Facebook is helping to take the place of churches in the communities. He better find a Savior who can rise from the dead. He better find an assembly and a cloud of witnesses if he accomplishes that. I wouldn't bet against the church if I were you. Every civilization has at some point because any government or any organization or any people that go up against the church inevitably find that the power source doesn't come from human means but from the spirit of the living God. Burn the buildings, banish the books destroy its influence and bury its head. And Jesus will say later on, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And just a few months after he says those words, the deacon Stephen, recorded as the first martyr of the early church, looks up at his stoning and he doesn't see land. He says, I see Jesus. And he's standing at the right hand of the throne of God because the greatest blessing in your life isn't found in goods, but in God. And he remembers his blessing and he keeps his covenants. People ask me sometimes, they say, why don't you get more upset about things that happen in the church when people complain? <laughs> Believe me, I do. Come to staff meeting. But I'll tell you what's always in the back of my mind. I know that this ultimately isn't your church. It doesn't belong to you. It isn't my church. It doesn't belong to me. It's God's church. And God takes care of what belongs to him. 
If he started it, he'll finish it. If he bought it with his blood, he'll keep it with his covenant. His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. And in the meantime, he reminds us that as we celebrate on Independence Weekend, that while we are thankful for our freedom, we, like the Israelites, desire a better country that isn't heavenly. And because of that, they were not ashamed to be called by their God, and he was not ashamed to call them his people. So as we celebrate today, and as we worship together, may we not forget that in a world of fake news and broken promises, God keeps his word. And he always will. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.